Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians in 2024. 2020 what? 2024. It's our first episode of the year. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm Cindy House here with Lizzie No. Lizzie. Hey, Cindy. Do you have New Year's resolutions? Okay, yes. Go. My New Year's resolution is to meditate for a month straight. Every day for the month? Yes, every day. You got this. That's going to be so good for you. Yeah, last year it was flossing. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Still flossing. Your teeth look incredible. And I bet your heart, I can like sense that your heart health is good. I can like sense it actually through the Zoom. Do you get that from flossing? Mm -hmm. It's really good for your heart. Oh, I didn't know that. Plaque is bad for your oh. heart. Yes. If you have not signed up for the Basic Folk newsletter, you can do so. We have a link in our show notes, or you can go to basicfolk.com and sign up. There's like a red sign up for the newsletter button. Basic Folk is on social media. Have you heard of social media? Basic Folk is on it. We're on Instagram mostly, TikTok as well, right? TikTok? And the face space. Facebook. Oh, right. Facebook. At Basic Folk Pod, that's where you'll 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 find us there. You you can also <laughs> Cindy and I are both really What's struggling happening? with pronunciation, so maybe our New Year's resolution as a podcast should be elocution. Did you know I went to Emerson College and that it was originally a college for elocution? Really? Yeah, a whole college for and it? giving speeches. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and giving speeches. And everybody was required to take a speech-giving class. That's a great idea. Um, I love you so much, Cindy, and you're one of my dearest friends, and I'm so glad that we're going into 2024 with that foundation um, firmly in place. However, you did not ask me my New Year's resolution, which makes me wonder about the reciprocity of our of our love. I, the thing is, is that we got sidetracked and started talking about elocution. So I would love to know your New Year's resolution. Well, I feel like my New Year's resolution is actually very um, related to yours. I set my resolutions like around my birthday, like an intention for the year. So my intention for this year is to like learn more about how my brain works with curiosity and not judgment and like try to work around that to like have a more happy life. Like mm. certain times of day, like we, we're, we, we can all learn about our brains like, oh, I'm better at like working at night or I'm better at getting mm -hmm. things done in the morning or I need to write things down or I need to say things out loud. Like I'm trying to just like observe those things about myself and use it as a way to like life hack my way into happiness. That's great. You know, we're counting down the days until Lizzie Knows album comes out. Do we have 15 days left? Yeah, just over two weeks. 
let the countdown begin. Everyone, if you're listening to this podcast, listen to my album. Just give it a chance. You won't regret it. <laughs> you won't. It's one of the coolest things I've ever made, I think. There will be a very special Basic Folk episode in February. We talked about featuring Lizzie No's new album. And I, I, like, I feel like you've told me details here and there about the record, like about the album cover and different songs and different music videos. And every time I'm like, after you're done telling me, what you're telling me, I'm like picking up my jaw off the floor and putting it back in oh place because it's like the artistic decisions on this piece of art are, whoo, love it. Thank you. Well, I'm very fucking nervous about my basic folk interview because yes, I'm going to be doing press for this album and I have been, but I'm, I feel like this is like the interview of interviews, you know, like mm. we are really going to get into yeah. it. I'm ready. Maybe. <laughs> Let's talk about our guest today. Uh, Lizzie, I'll do our little intro here, yeah. but do you want to share some takeaways about talking to Daryl Scott? Dude, the way that Daryl Scott expresses the process of making art, I just love. I love the way he talks about his collaborators. I have loved his music for so long. I first really got into Daryl Scott when I heard him perform with Tim O'Brien at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, like... 10 or 12 years ago his songwriting is iconic and he has so many songs that like are just beloved and really important to people but he's also just like a really dope eccentric guy um and he was so generous with his time with us and he was so generous with his stories and with like really talking about the way that he feels about the music and the stories behind them so <sighs> this one's a real this one's a real knockout and I love the corn maze moment I mean, I love corn. I'm a corn girly. <laughs> this is this is an interview for all of us. Yeah, uh, we definitely talk about a corn maze in this interview. And we're also opening up the interview talking about the cover of his latest album, Old Caneback Rocker, which I feel like the cover immediately sets the tone mm -hmm. for what this record is going to be like. It has the inclusion of the names of the Daryl Scott string band, Bryn Davies, Matt Flinner, and Shad Cobb. And it lets you know right off the bat that this recording is a band effort. The photo on the cover gives a visual of Scott's family roots in rural Kentucky. Beautiful photo that Daryl actually took himself featuring his cousin Dwight Messer, who's standing in front of his former childhood home, which is now abandoned on the family land. The music reflects his family's story, some like Dwight who stayed behind and some like Daryl's father, Wayne Scott, moved up north to find work. And despite being raised in the north, Daryl's home has always felt like Kentucky and traditional music he's learned there. And these songs showcase those roots. In our conversation, Daryl digs into the darkness that can be heard in his music, even if it's not a very sad song. He talks about his friend and frequent collaborator Tim O'Brien and how his performance and writing has allowed Scott to level up. Daryl also speaks to leaning into emotional songwriting and trusting his tears during the creative process. He shares the emotional account of re-recording his father's song, This Weary Way, and how he used to think that Hank Williams had actually written it, which is so funny and such a little kid thing to think. And immediately after we finished our interview, Lizzie texted me, what a cool, eccentric, intellectual dude. And I couldn't have said it better myself. 
This episode honestly discovers the true essence of Daryl Scott, an artist whose music resonates with the soul rooted in the traditions of Kentucky. This is going to be a fucking amazing experience for you, dear listener. So thank you for checking out this episode with Daryl Scott. Right off the bat, we're going to listen to um, a song from his new album. This is Kentucky Morning, and then we'll get to our conversation with Daryl Scott on Basic Folk. I am the one who stayed behind while the others were going away to the mills of Chicago, to the plants of Detroit. For the promise of a five dollar day They would come by in December While the folks were alive With gifts from the money they made And they'd talk of the nights Need the bright city lights And wonder how I ever stayed And I tell them Oh, your bright lights don't shine like a Kentucky morning. You can't hear a whippoorwill out on the street. Give me a good piece of land and an old cane bag rocker. While life goes on and on and on. Scott, welcome to Basic Folk. We are so excited to have you. I'm Lizzie Thank No. You. Cindy Howes is our main host, our founder and boss. Hello. Um, hey there. We're really excited about uh, your new album, Old Caneback Rocker. It's a great record, but let's start with the album cover. Yeah. Um, it's not traditional to talk about the visuals um, on an audio medium like a podcast, but it the album cover really does set the tone for the album. Um, the record is credited to Daryl Scott string band and all of the members names are right on the cover. Bryn Davies, uh, Matt Flinner and Chad Cobb so that you know right away it's a band album. Why yeah. was it important to you to present this as a band album with everybody's names right on the cover? Well, it is a band in that. Um, and I knew I wanted a band sound for this. Uh, and uh, I also wanted input from them. Uh, like uh, Shad brings in a song of his own, uh, Banjo mm -hmm. in the Holler. Uh, Matt Flinner brings in a tune of his own, uh, Raji's Romp. And then we wrote a tune together, me and, me and Matt. And uh, I just wanted everyone's contribution because I know how good they are. And mm -hmm. a lot of players, uh, oh, you could call them side men, side women. You know, they're there. They are the sound of bands and studio sessions for the most part. And then the only one that gets credited is, you know, the single person. I, and I just wanted more of a band sound on this. And, uh, you know, we've been playing, I don't even know how long, uh, 10 years, 12, something like that. And um, I just wanted a band album. Another part mm -hmm. of what that means is they're singing to, they're not just bringing in tunes, which they did, uh, but they're singing on every song. If I, if I recall, like every song. And that's mm -hmm. never happened for us before as a band. Uh, usually we're just making it up at a gig. And vocals are like the last thing you can add in, in a sound to me. 
you got to at least know how to play the song or the form and subtleties like singing lyrics with the timing of the singer that has had never come up because we just kind of mm. get through the musical part. So this one, I wanted a, a change in that way with vocals included. Hmm. And the image on the front of the album, it's a picture you took of your cousin Dwight Messer standing in front of his abandoned childhood home on yeah. your family's land in Kentucky. This album is about your family, your father who went up north for work, and the people who stayed behind like your cousin. It's such a yeah. beautiful photo. What was it like for you to capture that picture? And also, what does Dwight make of being on the cover of your record? Right. Well, it started, it, it, I wasn't shooting an album cover thing. We were taking a walk. So uh, my family is from Scott Holler, is what it's called, and it still is. Uh, and that's Scott Holler, and that's where the Scots came from in that area. But over the, the hill, just to the north, uh, you got to climb Tater Knob, uh, and you descend then up in, upon his holler, uh, mm -hmm. where his uh, his mom was my dad's sister, so... Anyway, uh, it really started as a walk over Tater Knob because I hadn't done that since I was eight years old. And then, you know, here we just did this in the last two or three years, this walk. And so I was just documenting our walk. So I have shots on the way there and all that just from an iPhone situation. And when we got there, you know, I, I didn't have him pose or do anything. I'm just taking shots like you would carry your iPhone and do that. That's all I was doing. Mm. Uh, and there was this one that looked like that like the album, the front of the album. And um, it was like, I knew I had a really good shot there, but I didn't know it was this album. Uh, and then when we started thinking about album artwork, really it was my wife, Angela, who also was a uh, art gallery owner, a curator for uh, 15 years. So she's got an eye for all that kind of stuff. And she said, what about the shot of Dwight? And I was like, oh mm -hmm. yeah, that's going to be perfect. Um, and then, you know, I didn't want to, uh, I, I needed to call and let him know what I was doing once we got to that point of knowing it was going to be the covers to see if he would grant his permission for it. And uh, of course he did and would. And, um, you know, for me, it's 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 my family, but it's also those those haulers that we came from. Uh, and somehow that seemed like a good base visually uh, for this record and, and its content. Hmm subjects and so, such has this turned dwight into a celebrity no it'd, it'd be pretty hard to do that he's a <laughs> he, he's a very um humble and and soft-spoken and uh, you know he he kind of uh he's very old 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 kentucky to me mm. like my aunts and uncles and grandparents and all that he and um you know, that's he can be the poster child for Kentucky for me. So that that's why it's on the cover, because hmm. it, it does. It, it's Kentucky to me. This record, the sound wise is a mix of everything that moved you growing up, especially what you heard on country radio in the 60s and 70s. Can you talk about your relationship with the radio throughout your life? Yeah, the radio was everything. I mean, that's I mean, we did buy records here, there. And Yonder very rarely went to any shows. Um, but we did go to the Grand Ole Opry when I was seven, I do believe. And then that was our first vacation ever uh, from northern Indiana, uh, where wow. we were living. Do you remember who you saw? Oh, yeah. The, the whole Grand Ole Opry stuff, um, Roy Acuff, 
uh, Marty Robbins and, you know, the whole everything. It's a big variety show, you know. Uh, you know, even today I, I went, well, let's see, about six months ago and it's still a great show. It's just mm-hmm. bang, bang, bang of uh, artists coming out and the audio is there. The the band sounds are there, different bands. And uh, it's still that kind of exciting show. And that's what I saw, you know, uh, when I was, when we went to, you know, the Nashville for our first vacation. And then we, we did it every other year after that. Um, there was like no other place to go for a country music loving family. Uh, so the radio was, um, you know, how we'd hear the latest songs of, and country radio was all that my mom and dad would listen to. There would be zero else. Um, and um, so, you know, a big country music radio education. And there was a time when uh, country music uh, also played bluegrass. Right. Uh, that's that's where the bluegrassers would, uh, you know, have a bigger listenership was on country radio back in the 60s. And uh, same thing at the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, Bluegrass was very represented at the Opry too back in those days. Um, So radio was everything, you know. Um, That's where I got my country music education. Now, Tim O'Brien is a longtime collaborator and friend of yours. Um, Are there aspects of Tim's writing that you're jealous of and that you've learned from and is there a Tim O'Brien song you wish that you had written? Wow. Well, Tim is that uh, what they call the triple threat thing, where yeah. he's a great singer, great writer, um, and uh, great live. So he's got the full package. Yeah, what I learned mostly from Tim as we played a lot of years together was uh, his, his uh, large embrace of uh, Roots music, like let's say as far back as Ireland mm-hmm. uh, music, because you know that's where we got our folk music anyway. Here in America was you know the borrowing from every thing we could get our hands on. Evidently, as a people, uh, blues is sitting in 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 folk. Uh, bluegrass is sitting in folk, old time uh, ballads, mm-hmm. singer songwriter tradition, all that stuff. Um, so what I learned from Tim was um, his huge embrace of 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 roots music and his roots uh you know he's a real deal irish he can sit in with any irish band on the planet easily uh so he's got that tradition he obviously has bluegrass Uh, he's got the singer songwriter tradition so it was to me it was uh it's almost uh seeing tim gave me permission to really realize like well geez i have roots too and i'm gonna Mm. and i was already on that path but but being with somebody like tim uh just you know compounds that that's what I could be doing, and is definitely one of my uh, oh, sounds and uh, musics is is the embrace of folk music, and Kentucky music or old church music gets blended in there too, uh, and to to uh, to not try to bury your roots, and just show your new thing. Go ahead and and embrace it right to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, your generations past. Uh, so that's that's what I saw from Tim. And when the two of you play together, what do you notice about yourself as a performer? Like, are there aspects of your own performance and your own musicality that shine in that duo setting that don't really come forward in your solo work? Well, uh, the biggest thing uh, is that second person on stage is really, really good. Uh, And so I bring, 
in theory than my triple threat, if that's what it is, mm -hmm. uh, to the same situation. So I'm playing, you know, at the top of my uh, abilities, singing at the top of my abilities and offering in songs uh, when it comes time to record at the top of my abilities as well. Uh, and if both people are doing that and both are really good uh, away from each other, then together, if they have a, a muscle for, uh, you know, someone else, because sometimes uh, there's a reason why people are lone performers. Mm -hmm. uh, they do best on their by themselves. Uh, but it, but me and Tim are both the kind of guys we can be uh, really good sidemen and, uh, you know, just you know, making things sound better vocally or uh, instrument-wise and all that. And uh, basically playing alone, I'm covering everything. And then when there's a second person there, like me and Tim, uh, I'm still covering everything, but there's this embellishment and then vice versa. When he's singing a song, he's most likely holding down the fort of the chords and this, mm -hmm. here's how the song goes. But then then I'm the embellishment guy. And um so we would just, uh, we would never rehearse that, we, just the way it was and is. Mm. Uh, and I think any two players who are full spectrum players uh, could, could and would be doing that same thing. Meaning try to make every song sound as good as you can possibly make it, given, mm -hmm. you know, where, where we're coming from. So, it, and with me and Tim, it was, you know, Irish stuff, uh, bluegrassy stuff, country stuff. Uh, acapella stuff it was it it was all fair game for us back then you were just talking um, earlier about learning that Appalachian roots uh, come from traditional Scottish and English folk music and I've actually, Heard you talking about that before, about um, touring in Scotland and England, playing with Tim O'Brien and learning that um, about Appalachian music. How did your perspective on the music where you came from or the way you approach your songwriting changed when you realized it's Scottish and English roots? You know, it kind of didn't. It just felt like uh, uh, I... I was home in a way, uh, musically, and, and I, I never felt like I really learned those musics. I felt they were already in me. Uh, and, mm, so, and, that's cool. and so going to those uh, cultures um, just kind of confirmed, like, why, why would I be able to play and understand and, and be right there with Scottish music or English or Irish? It's because, you know, down the road, we over here, uh, brought those musics, those fiddle styles, or the, uh, and in terms of songwriting, uh, I kind of feel the way that Pete Seeger has said uh, about learning to be a, a good songwriter is to learn a thousand songs of somebody else, and um, and I'm I'm a practitioner of that. Uh, I grew up. That was my radio listening. I wasn't just I it, I didn't know it, but I was actually studying the music from radio back when I was six and eight and 10 and all that, because I'm listening, uh, interested in the harmonies. I'm interested in the songwriting form. I'm listening to production. I'm listening to the writing and how true it feels um, or how false it feels. Uh, for some reason, I was, I 
grew up with that kind of uh, listening, a kind of a strong listening, a, a, a large, deep uh, listening. And, and I, I wonder I apply where that, that came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard um, to be a good listener. Well, let's see if the cab of the truck was filled with, say, my mom and dad or the station wagon uh, and, say, four brothers. Um, listening is a big part of just even managing, you know, these environments uh, mm-hmm. with three other brothers at that time. A fourth was to come later and mom and dad and then a radio. Well, what am I going to hone in on? You know, mm-hmm. uh fighting with my brothers. Fair or, point. You know. yeah. <laughs> so I just became a listener, both of, you know, people talking or whatever, but also the radio was, uh, I would zero in on that stuff. Mm. I want us to put on our music historian hats. Um, the way that we having, the way that we engage with traditional music has changed so much over time from play, families sitting around playing instruments and singing <laughs> together then gathered around the radio, then on TV, then on the internet. And now, you know, we listen through headphones streaming, you know, all of the music that's ever been created. So how do you think these changing mediums through which we experience traditional music have affected the role that traditional music plays in our lives and like how we how we relate to traditional music? Well, the top of the list, I would think would be accessibility. So we do have access to old field recordings. Uh, we do have access to, you know, uh, Irish music from the 40s or 50s or whatever, uh, on and on because of access now. Um, we just punch it in and, and out comes, you know, in essence, music of the world if we if we know where to go to look for it. Uh, so accessibility is sitting there. So, um, you know, it's funny, in essence, we're talking, there'd be two things we're talking about. One is a personal walk with music. Uh, and the other one is is talking about the mass uh, acceptance of music, like what radio would do by back in the day or what uh, internets do now. Um, and and to me, the, uh, the roots music, the folk music, we could even say, uh, doesn't need mass acceptance in order for it to survive. It survived just fine and dandy without uh, you know, a radio uh, system holding on to it. There's still shows, there's still uh, music passed around, however it does that, however it always has, um, and how those folk traditions uh, lived even without internets or records. You know, this is all, we. this has been here before us. Uh, and so the mass acceptance is something I don't know even how to comment about. Um, I'd I know I'm part of a mass something, but I don't often feel very connected to the mass. Uh, so, uh, for example, for me to turn on the news, which I rarely do, I feel like I'm observing another culture, not mine. Uh, my culture uh, doesn't really have to do with news. Uh, there's already news uh, that's very different from what I'm seeking. Uh, I'm not looking for mass for us all to know the same song uh, is not terribly important to me. Uh, I think folk music comes up, bubbles up from the ground up, and it may not need mass hysteria acceptance in order to survive because it hasn't needed it. Uh, The music survives uh, even without the mass acceptance. 
Other than songs like Fried Taters, which is very funny, ridiculous song on your new record. So fun. Yeah. Other th- oh, good. So, other than uh, songs like Fried Taters, there is like a darkness in your music, like in your playing and singing. Even if it's not a sad song, there's a, a pain, uh-huh. reverence, and yearning you can hear. How do you hear that in your music? And do you have a handle on that darkness or does it does it just come out of you? Right. Well, um, what's well, funny, you mentioned darkness, uh, which I think is a very good observation to to have because I know that it's there. I, I'm I'm aware of it being there. I'll give you an example. A lot of people hear my song, It's a Great Day to Be Alive, uh, that I wrote and um they they think it's just cheery cheerios and all grins and stuff uh but in fact uh what i describe in that song is actually a pretty simple day um let's see maybe i'll heat up some soup maybe i'll cook some rice in the microwave very simple stuff uh, maybe i'll grow a beard just very mundane nothing kind of stuff uh and that's to be considered in to this in the song as a great day to be alive uh, and so what makes it a great day to be alive is the contrast of uh, the days where it may not be a great day to be alive. You see what I mean? That's implied in the song that's in there, uh, but not many people catch it. They think it's a great day to be alive is the most cheery, you know, uh, smiley face song that there is, or certainly of mine. Um, but in fact, half that song is based in the darkness you, you've mentioned. Uh meaning the person, the narrator knows suffering or, or hardship or know, or observes the world's hardship. Uh, and, and it's, it's just rice and microwave and, and soup and stuff like that. Very simple things. Um, so the darkness, um, I just think is part of being alive. I think, uh, somehow in this mass, again, going back to the mass, uh, we're supposed to hide our darkness. We're supposed to deal with our darkness, especially uh, on our own. But I find that the songwriting world, uh, the uh, communication and expression world, uh, is uh, the place to bring out, quote, the the darkness or the brightness or the wonderings or the uh, disappointments. That's where this has a place to be. Uh, So otherwise, the darkness is a private affair. Uh, I turned that private affair into a public uh, affair when I take the song out of my own room where I wrote it and now bring it out to either shows or recordings where uh, a whole bunch of people could hear it by comparison. So that's the contrast that a working artist works with. That darkness you're referring to is in their art, period. Uh, if, if To me, if you're being a true artist, uh, you won't not talk about the dark stuff. Uh, but you also maybe don't live there and let it have it destroy you. You have an expression in which to, uh, it's kind of like the blues, you know, the blues comes from a pretty dark place, right? On one hand, but on the other hand, the very fact that you can express the blues is already, uh, you know, it goes on the side of, Hey, this is going somewhere. This we're taking this darkness and turning it into, something more celebration-like or that other people could feel that same thing. So it's a crazy contrast, 
between uh, personal expression and uh, and then turning this thing into public, whether it's recordings or shows. Now I'm singing the song, you know. Um, I I want to stay in the dark place. Okay. Um, one hand upon the wheel uses the small concrete details of small town life to lead the listener into that quiet place where we can feel death sitting close by. Uh-huh. Um, so the tune is melancholy, but also warm and reflective. What does the tone of that song say about your relationship with loneliness and with solitude? Yeah, well, I'm familiar with it. Very familiar with uh, loneliness and solitude. Um, for some reason, I'm, I've, it's been a, a companion uh, walking, it feels like throughout my life. Uh, it doesn't mean like I need to get rid of it and then I'll be a happy guy. I don't really see that as, as the option. I see uh, being able to write songs about it and observe it in other people. So for that song, uh, One Hand Upon the Wheel, you know, that's a character. And I just started on the writing of it, um, uh, just trying to describe and, and observe this person that I was only discovering while I was writing it. So it wasn't like I saw a person and now I'm going to write a, you know, a musical essay on on that person. Uh, I just started the first line, led me to the second line. And I, I that particular song, uh, well, actually, it's kind of interesting. I buried that song, I don't even know how long, 15 years or more. Uh, oh. And I didn't think I had hooked it. I didn't think I had brought, brought it. And so I just... Uh, I think artists have this way. If you if someone paints a painting they don't want others to see, it's kind of easy to hide that painting somewhere where no one will see it. Uh, and I'm the same way uh, in terms of songs. If I don't think a song is ready, you will never hear it from me. Uh, there would be no reason I would play a song that I don't think is done. Um, you know, uh, and so that's one of those songs. And when I was then casting songs for this um uh, uh, you know, our string band record, I went back to songs that I had oh, basically buried or just didn't think were there. As a matter of fact, two of them are on this album. Uh, Kentucky Morning is a song that n no one had heard because uh, I didn't think it was done. And and so both of those songs, Kentucky Morning and One Hand Upon the Wheel, were songs that had been around a good while. I just didn't think I had it. And so when I went back to revisit those songs in the One Hand Upon the Wheel, I realized I did have it. You know, it just took me 15 or more years to to understand that. And then the other one, Kentucky Morning, came about by getting rid of, uh, I had a fourth verse. And once I got rid of that, and it always felt cumbersome, it, it never felt complete. And I, and I, um, I didn't know why uh, for years, and I just leave it alone. Uh, I don't try to thrash it into being finished today. It doesn't matter to me whether it's finished today or in 15 years. Uh, but I realized on that song, if I just took out the fourth verse, it was complete. And I, when I was writing it, I didn't know that. I thought it needed more. And that's one of those cases where taking the exact same song that I had buried and didn't want anyone to know about because it wasn't finished, suddenly taking away that fourth verse in Kentucky Morning uh, made the song finished to me. I understood now that it was done. So, you know, for me, my latest album is never the last 10 songs that I wrote. 
Like I, mm. I, I recognize that out of a lot of folks, but it has, uh, it doesn't have much to do with how I make records. So to me, when I was scouting for songs for this uh, string band record, I was looking for songs that I thought the string band could do, uh, both arrangement wise or sound wise. Um, and that's, that's what I cast uh, songs for on records is what wants to be on this record, not what was the chronologically the last 10 songs that I wrote. Uh, so I'm a different guy, I think, in that department. Um, but to me, the, the getting back to the darkness stuff, uh, I think if you don't embrace the darkness, uh, well, this may be strong language, but I think we're fooling ourselves. Uh, and um, I was getting ready I don't for wanna, a swear. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I could come up with those as well. But um, I think it's part of the deal. I think it's part of being human. Uh, certainly, it's part of being an artist um, and someone expressing and creating stuff. I mean, why have this giant part of our lives, uh, the doubt, the darkness, the woundings, the this and the that, why keep that all hidden and, you know, and only show our, uh, you know, happy, happy face stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've always felt, um, and there's a reason why uh, the best music I ever was moved by uh, were, were artists who had what's, to me, embraced, so to speak, the dark, uh, and know that it's part of the journey, too. It doesn't mean we have to stay there and dwell there and, and die there, uh, but I, that's why I call it a companion. I feel like it's been with me all along the way, and it's not uh, a bummer. Mm. Um, it might bring out better songwriting, uh, so to speak. Um, and uh, at least the idea of telling the truth, including depressive stuff or happy stuff or anything else, seems to be the object. That's the object. And, and so to, to me, the, the darkness stuff is just part of it. As I understand it, each band member contributed a song to the album, except for Bryn. Yeah. And I read that she reluctantly named the album Old Cane Back Rocker, which comes from the opening song, Kentucky Morning. Uh-huh. And that's, it sounds like there's a story there. And, and like, maybe that's a pretty good story of how you got the name of that record. Like, why was she reluctant? Well... Well, what she was reluctant about was not naming the album. What she was reluctant about was bringing in a song and her singing it. That's what she was reluctant about. What's her problem? Yeah, that's a good question. Basically, <laughs> artists, um, to step into full artistdom, uh, it takes a different muscle than the stepping into a side man, side woman oh, yeah. place. Uh, and I, myself, I was, I'm a very good side man. And I, that's what I grew up doing. I, I was a good 20 year old side man and 24 year old side man and all that stuff. Uh, I could be a really good side man tonight. Uh, it's a skill set that, um, that I love, uh, and it helps me in everything I do, even as a solo artist, I, I bring all of that in, uh, some people, uh, have a hard time stepping from being side person uh, 
and then stepping into and now the lights on me kind of thing. Mm. And that's a journey that each person has to find on their own. Uh, for example, some people t- step into that journey into being in the light, you know, the spotlight, uh, and they probably shouldn't have. Uh, they probably should have, you know, <laughs> spent a little more time being a side person, uh, <laughs> learning guitar, piano, harmony, learning how to not. Daryl Scott whole... throwing shade. Yeah. <laughs> After we finish recording, I want you to name names. Yes, we need names. Name names. Oh, no, no, no. I won't be naming I'm names. Just I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, all you got to do is uh, trust your own ears. Do you believe this person or not? Uh, how good a work are they doing? How truth-telling are they making this? You know what I mean? We, we have uh, all, the, uh, all the critical analysis uh, anyone would want is, is in each of us. Uh, and, then, uh, and then some side people, you can't make them step into the, the light. Uh, the spotlight. Uh, and th- I'm just, I'm thinking that Bryn wasn't ready to, you know, to contribute a song and I didn't push it. Uh, you know, those are, um, you know, people make up their own mind on that kind of stuff. And I've played both sides myself. Uh, what motivated me to step into the spotlight of sorts was, uh, uh, my load of songs. It was my songs. I had songs that wouldn't allow me to just be a sideman. Uh, I had songs that needed someone to sing them. And, you know, if you get famous people to record your songs, you know, that's good. Uh, You make money and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, of the very few songs that have been famous or recorded of mine, that's an extremely small fraction of the amount of songs I've written. So it, it implies that only the four to eight songs or whatever it might be that are famous of mine, that means the other three, 400 songs aren't worth listening to? I don't think so. Uh, I just, you see what I mean? So if I'm going to represent the whole spectrum of my writing, guess who has to step into the spotlight? Uh, and that's me. And so I understand the transition of side man, side woman, and then uh, taking up the spotlight, you know, even for a song. Um, and uh, I, I understand that because that's, that's how I was too, until I had songs that basically wouldn't allow me to uh, to hide as a sideman any longer. Now, speaking of your most famous songs, It's a Great Day to Be Alive is a modern classic of country. How did you approach this newest recording um, of this song so that it would feel new to you and the band? Um, and how does this new arrangement reflect where you are now as a performer versus where you were as a songwriter when you wrote it? Right. Uh, well, there's a funny story of why I recorded It's a Great Day to Be Alive with this band, and that is uh, there's a uh, corn maze uh, that happens, uh, like corn mazes across the, U- the United States, from what I understand. We have one just north of Nashville, and they were doing, uh, and they cut, uh, designs into the corn uh, fields uh, and they honor a different music person every year. Well, they were doing me uh, wow. and I knew this two or three months in advance. Uh, that So by September, you know, I'm going to be cut out in corn, my image. And <laughs> an and honor words. of a lifetime. Forget the Grammys. Right. You got a yeah, corn exactly. maze. Yeah. So I thought, if is there's... it cool if I take that phrase to write a song? Like, I've been cut out in corn and 
Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that'd be killer. As a matter of fact, that's a good idea. So list okay. all the I'm things. I'm stealing that from you. Yeah, do it. <laughs> do it. And and so I thought we couldn't just let this corn opportunity just go by. <laughs> Definitely not. And then we were recording anyway, so I just brought in that song, and and we played that song. The the band's played that song, and I just you know, uh, and then we made a video out of it because we went to the corn maze. Uh, and uh, made a video out of it, which is kind of cool. Can I just uh, say I, that video is tantalizing? I watched it. I was like, I want to see the corn maze, and you ha- it—it's it, like it whips by, and you just got to keep watching it. I got to watch it again because it's like you don't—you don't get to see it the way that I want to see. The, I, sorry, just a complaint. I just want to well, stop complaining complaint. about this amazing recording. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got it. Well, uh, you. We have to tease, see, because the the punchline is, oh my God, they really did make my face in in the corn. It is a tease, uh, and so we have to tease it until <laughs> that one spot <laughs> where the drone leaves my hands and goes up ninety feet in the same shot, and then you see you see it for the first time. See? Also, Daryl Scott throws his hat in the air and walks away from it, and I'm like, what happened to the hat? You left yeah. the hat behind. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one of my good hats. Uh, I grabbed it. Okay, good. <laughs> I grabbed it, but uh, I did that f- for the shot. Yeah. Um, for the record, you and the band settled into a band house in Louisville, Colorado. Is it pronounced yeah. Louisville when it comes to Colorado? Okay. They um, may say Louisville. Maybe. Louisville. They, they, I, they might. Yeah, I think that's it. It doesn't. Maybe matter. I'll say both for the recording, and then our editor can uh, just just choose which one sounds more uh, yeah. appropriate. Um, so you lived together for a couple of weekends while you made the record in Boulder, and you would walk to Moxie Bread Company every morning and drive to Boulder to record. Yeah. Why was it important to get your band living together like this while making this record, and how do you think it influenced the way the album came together? I thought it was very important. Uh, first of all, good food is important anyway. Uh, and so I, I had a tip on the Moxie Bakery thing. Um, I knew that that was going to be a world-class Daryl, you know, who gave you the bakery. tip? A chef friend of mine in uh, the, in the uh, Boulder area. Okay. And so when he tells me things, and he does, because uh, I travel all over the country, he'll tell me where to go eat in Philadelphia. He'll tell me... Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Philadelphia, and he'll tell me where the best uh, cheese steak sandwich in Philly is, and all that. He good friend to have. Oh yeah, and so he's the one who turned me on to Moxie. And when he tells me something, you know, I know that it's the right stuff. Uh, he went through culinary school, and he's a great chef. Uh, so that you know, that was you got to eat well, and you got to drink well, uh, you know, and just to live together just for a few days. Um, I thought it was important as part of the the band sound too, in a way. Um, it's just, you know, it also means that that night after the recording, we could be sitting in the house, maybe running some lyrics or vocals for the next day or something like that. Or, uh, you know, it's just a camaraderie. It's just a hang. And it's not a large hang. We probably, uh, I think we recorded three days uh, and then a partial fourth and a partial fifth to wrap it up. But the fourth and fifth days were gigs that we were doing. So, you know, we'd have to cut out by three or something um, and have partial days. But that's just part of the band. 
that's just part of what I was looking for. I wanted this uh, to be kind of a unit for a very short amount of time, really four or five days, really. Now, I, let's talk about the song Charlie and Ruby. Um, it's a story about a love, a long love full of high hopes and some disappointments. Mm-hmm. Why was it important to you to write about partnership in the context of struggle? And how does class color this story of love? Right. Well, I guess the class for those, the two folks, Charlie and Ruby, are their working class. They're uh, farming class. They're small town class. Um, they're, uh, they don't strive for more than, probably more than even what their mom and dad might have done. They might have been farmers too, would be my guess. Um, they were my next door neighbors. And uh, when I moved to Nashville area, I was out in the country a little bit. Uh, and Charlie and Ruby literally lived next door. So that song, Charlie and Ruby, was really a describing of my neighbors and what I saw in them. Um, and I, I brought that idea to uh, Bruce Robeson. And and Bruce was really taken by these next door neighbors. Oh, let's write a song about your neighbors you were telling me about. And so off we went. And uh, really just at that point, if that's now what we're supposed to do, then uh, I'm gathering up details, you know, like his clothing that he wore, a detail like uh, uh, Ruby would literally wheel around her oxygen in her house. You, you'd never see her outside exactly. But in that house, she'd wheel around the oxygen and then and stop and light a cigarette and smoke a cigarette and then put the oxygen mask back on. I mean, so all, you know, and those things, all you got to do is describe what is there. You, you know, uh, I have an imagination, but I also have a, a pretty strong uh, observing uh, ability for detailed stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's a combination of uh, just observing like a journalist would perhaps, and then uh, imagining filling in the blanks for the other stuff. So it really just became a character study or a couple study of, uh, of my next door neighbors that uh, Bruce was kind of taken by and we jumped into this song. So what did recording this weary way teach you about your father's musical mind? Um, and are there aspects of this recording that feel different than they did back when you um, recorded the album This Weary Way back in 2006? Right. Yes, it's a funny thing. Time doesn't seem to have a lot to do with songs to me. It's like, I've known This Weary Way since I was a child. My dad wrote it uh, when I was a child. And I knew, I heard it then. I heard it through my 20s and 30s and all that stuff. Uh, And uh, because of the nature of this recording that was going to be a string band album, I wanted to bring in my dad's song. Uh, this weary way and to me it's my dad's best song uh as a matter of fact i used to think uh that hank williams wrote it i thought it was a hank williams song because (laughs) my dad would sing hank songs and johnny cash and this and that and then throw one of his in and i always knew my dad's songs versus hank or johnny or anything but this was the one song that i thought hank did write and come to find out no my dad wrote that and uh so First of all, I just think it's a great song, and I'm proud of it for what uh, my dad, you know, wrote. Uh, But I also thought it was a good fit for this recording uh, that the uh, string bands slash bluegrass 
players that I had, um, you know, there'd be harmony in it. There'd be fiddle. You know, it has all it's hitting all the marks. But if, uh, an interesting thing happened while we recorded uh, this weary way there in Boulder. Basically, I got into the second verse and we're tracking everything live. So the lead vocal is going down. Uh, the, everything's going down exactly how it's going to be in the end. Uh, we may have overdubbed uh, a mandolin or a banjo or something, maybe. But otherwise, we're when we record, we're getting everything. The only thing we're not getting is background vocals. Uh, and so we, after a song, we've done it and all that. Then we hit the background vocals as a separate thing. And even then, we're singing together. So I still try to get that, getting it all off the floor as possible. While I was doing the verse two uh, live, uh, I just uh, broke into, you know, tears of, you know, crazy a break of emotion while still playing. And, and so I cued, you know, we're all within one room of each other anyway. You know, they could see, the players could see me breaking up, but, you know, I can still play chords while crying. And so we got through the track, and that's the track we used uh, for the recording. And then I punched in a couple days later uh, the voice, the singing where, you know, I fell apart. Um, and so it feels like that my dad had died, I don't know, 10, nine years ahead of that recording. Uh, and it almost felt like I had never cried about his passing. And for some reason, um, the recording of that song in Boulder that day, that's where it snuck up on me and got me. It was in the verse two, uh, about halfway through, um, and so it became, I guess I would call it my um, my crying about my dad's passing showed up while I was recording this song of his. Um, and that's not exactly ever happened to me before either. Uh, and usually, and this is, again, we're going back to that dark conversation we said, usually we're supposed to hide our tears, right? We're not supposed to cry and all that stuff which is, you know, a bunch of shit, of course, uh, these <laughs> things inform about ourselves. And so, for example, as a creative person, I know that I'm onto something when, when I'm, I'm crying. I know that if I'm working on a song and I'm crying, I, it tells me I'm onto something and stay with it. It's not like, oh, I'm crying. I better, you know, go play tennis instead. Uh, I, I, I go into the crying. I go into, I, that's what I, in essence, what I was waiting for in, in one way, um, because the tears don't lie. They're, they're informing us of something. Um, and that's both in the writing, but also evidently in the recording on this particular one. Um, and I just broke down and, uh, you know, in essence had the cry that I didn't have for those eight or 10 years or whatever uh, previously. Uh, and, you know, I kept it because, you know, I'm working, I'm trying to make honest music, you know. Um, and uh, the players were all supportive and, you know, um, that's going to be the deal sometimes is uh, I figure we're going to cry. Uh, and as, as a creative person, I know it's part of the deal. I, basically, there's times as a singer 
or performer where you're just on the verge of like breaking down and then you somehow get in and push through it. You're not denying it, but you're just kind of keeping, keeping it right on that edge to where, God, I could just break down right now and not even be able to sing the next line. And you're right on that edge to where they won't know the story, they being the listeners. If you crack up right now, they're not going to hear that verse. So are you? can you make it through the verse and get the music across, get the song across, get the lyric across, but be right on that edge where... Uh, and sometimes I, I hear it in other singers. I hear them being there, and, and that's when I figure they're giving us the goods. You know, I've heard Vince Gill do it at least twice. Uh, and I'll bet he's done it dozens of times. But I myself have seen him do it twice. Uh, and that that edge, you know, it's a scary place in one way, because if you break down and cry, whether you're on television or in a show or on a recording, you know, uh, you know, how do they edit that one out? You know, uh, but it's it's almost in a way it means that Vince was in it enough to bring the goods to be, to fall apart. And as singers uh, and artists, I think that's our edge. That's our call to be on that place where I think I gave too much. I shouldn't have talked about that type of thing. You know, we question ourselves uh, as artists, but I think you got, that's the, that's the good news is if you could be breaking down while you're writing a song or performing you're on to something and trust those. I trust, I trust those tears. Wow. Um, how has your confidence evolved over the years? Your confidence as a player, as a singer, a songwriter, producer? Right. I think it's evolved a lot. I, of uh, just saying that I used to be a sound, a side man. Uh, I was a really good one too. Uh, because it's music. It's, it's, you know, side man or front man. It doesn't, on one level, it doesn't matter. It's what's the best music you can pull out right now. Uh, but going from sideman to being the one who needs to stand in the middle of the stage and, you know, sing the songs and, uh, you know, I guess, you know what I mean? That that transition, uh, they had that movie, was it 50 Feet from Stardom or something like that? Oh, that's such a good movie. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, it is. It's a great movie. And it's it talks about, and, you know, Springsteen's in that, movie talking about uh one of the the people that that's in the movie too as a, as the side singer uh he knew he believe me he knows how good those background singers are or those background you know guitar or bass or this we know these things and um it's it's, it's back to that conversation about Bren why didn't she bring in a tune uh, I knew that I had I, my confidence was raised when I started stepping into the middle. It wasn't, uh, it was the most awkward thing possible for me to do because I'm very happy being a sideman and not needing to do that, except I had the songs. The songs made me do that. Um, and so the more I've done it, the more confidence I've gained from it. Uh, and I, I don't really have any other way to say it. I had to spend a lot of time feeling extremely awkward being in the center of the stage mm. <laughs> uh, uh, and then just pushing past it, almost like that singing thing where you're almost going to cry, but you keep it, you hold it. That's that same edge I kind of kept as a performer 
of these songs uh, where I would be more comfortable as a sideman, I would push myself and be on that edge to get more practice and to where the hope that I wouldn't be as awkward uh, doing my own stuff or being the center of the stage uh, as I once did. And I, I, all I can say is that that has happened. Uh, and I think it was a slow turning, um, but I kept, I kept being uncomfortable uh, until it was more, it flowed more and it, and it has been now for several years. It feels like that mm. it's, it's, it's flowed more easily. Sounds like a fake it till you make it. Situation. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Cause it sure wouldn't have, if it would have been a com a comfort ometer, you know, uh, I was uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but, uh, I got comfortable being uncomfortable basically. And I kept yeah. pushing along to where, uh, I mean, I literally have gone to places, you know, where there's 25,000 people and I'm the opener of, you know, a big stadium type show. Uh, and I go out there by myself and, uh, that's a huge journey from being the side man that was comfortable doing that. Um, so yeah, all I can say is that I just did it and did it and did it and did mm -hmm. it, uh, to where mm -hmm. it felt more comfortable eventually. Mm. Um, on cultivating young songwriters, you produced Willie Carlisle's new album, Critterland, which is coming out on January 26th. And I read you listened to his first album and you said, I could hear the writer in there, but something was missing. Then you get to hear 20 to 25 new songs Willie had been working on and said, those sounded like a real writer. What did you hear in those two batches of songs? Like what was missing that Willie was able to grasp on his newer songs? Right. Well, uh, I'm not sure that they weren't there in the first listening of what the album whatever that got sent to me um but and i'm a really good listener uh i can hone in on the writing when other parts of it are too much i can still zone in on the writing and and consider what was there basically the second batch they sent me the first batch was his current album at the time the second batch was songs he was writing like yesterday and last week and all that that's where I heard like, oh, I see. He's he's writing. Th there's how to record him. It was practically to just record him like he had done his his uh, little demos uh, of when he just write a song. He'd do it in this, a simple way and then be done with it and go to the next song or whatever. That's pretty much what we did when we made his record. It was just uh, me and him. Uh, really, it was him and then me below that just trying to find a way to to make the song work even as the two of us. And then we had an engineer. So we literally brought the album up from the two of us and more especially from him uh, because he plays banjo, he plays accordion, he plays harmonica, guitar. Uh, so he was, he was who I was making a record on. So it was, it was him that I wanted. It was his playing and singing and um, to keep it simple. So in essence, the album I heard got complicated, I thought, as yeah. a production and as a sound. And then there was a singer-songwriter down in the middle of it that that's who I wanted to shine the light on, um, was the songs and, the, and, and the, the narrator, the writer guy. And we did that. And that's I could hear that we could make that album 
for Willie in pretty short time. I think we may have spent three, four days, something like that, and really kind of had the album. I mean, lock, stock, and barrel. Um, because the songs were there and his performance of the songs, he, it's what he does as he's out tonight somewhere playing by himself, singing his songs. That's what he does. And that's all I needed to do for the recording is pretty well make it seem like he could play this song, you know, and not feel like he needed drums, bass, pedal, steel, piano, organ, you know, uh, background singers uh, on and on and on covering up what in essence was a, you know, uh, an old time slash folk uh, singer songwriter cap, uh, and that's that's all we needed to do, and uh, and he could more than pull it off. Hmm. That's a beautiful approach to producing. Um, so, Newgrass Revival was a big influence on you early on, and and it shows because you've embraced a combination of innovation and tradition throughout your career. So, aside from Willie. Who are some up and coming artists in the folk and bluegrass space who give you hope for the genre? And like what's new in bluegrass that we should be listening to? Wow. In many ways I'm I'm just as I don't listen to news, so you wouldn't really want to ask me what I thought about what was going on in uh, Israel and Gaza, right? Okay. <laughs> I'd just be an idiot. Uh and I'm something of the same when it's like what's the new bluegrass? more cutting-edge singer-songwriter, you'd be surprised how much I don't listen. And um, so I'm the least informed person you could ask that question to uh, because I kind of don't listen. Hmm. Uh, But anytime I put my toe in just to see what's going on, uh, there's great stuff going on. Uh, We've got much uh, call for uh, celebration and looking forward to... uh, uh, you know, the artistry, the songwriting, the ideas, um, especially in the folk world. Uh, there's there's all sorts of great minds and great talents going on. Um, I'm just not informed to like, then I go and mm. seek out who, who was that or what was that. Um, I don't know why I do that, but uh, that's, I can see that's what I do. Um, do you want rather, us to I, give you suggestions? Hell Yes. <laughs> Hell Lizzie, yes. what's your suggestion? I think you should listen to the Crying Uncle Bluegrass Band. Okay. Ooh, that's good. They See, are fantastic. See, y'all are, you have your, your thumb on the pulse or whatever they call that. <laughs> You're the ones who that's could tell me. That's why they me. pay us the big bucks yes. right. at the Bluegrass so, situation. That, okay, what else? Sure. I got Crying Uncle, what else? Well, look out for Lizzie Knows new record in January. Lizzie, wow. That's not a paid promotion. Or, that is my new record. As Lizzie says, January. Thank you, Cindy. Wow. And, uh, See, I you got, guys. Daryl, I got one more. What is it? Margo Silker with a, with a C. <gasps> C-I-L-K-E-R. Margo Silker. Okay. There we she go. Is, her new record is uh, one of my favorites. After William Prince's, it's, it's my favorite record of 2020. It's so good. Keep really it on good. a burner. Mm-hmm. I mean... Whew. What do I do in the middle between the coffee and the wine? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah, that's good. See there? Y'all y'all know more than I do. I I'm 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 just in whatever bag I'm in. Uh, <laughs> I'm not cutting edge listener whatsoever. But uh 
I appreciate what you told me. So now I can go uh, seek this out. Well, before we let you go, do you have time for a quick lightning round? Sure. All right. Go ahead, Lizzie. What was your dad's favorite chair? <laughs> a funny co- uh, answer would be the bar stool. <laughs> but I'm not sure he had a favorite chair, but I, I like the bar stool. That'd be a pretty good one. What was your favorite childhood game? Uh, dodgeball. And, and it wouldn't be like one side, this side, and then the guys in the middle. It'd be a garage wall and the brothers throwing in at you. Uh, yeah, and they, they were ruthless too. Firing squad dodgeball. Yeah, pretty much. Um, what was the first song you learned on the guitar? Yeah, I have, I have this song called um, uh, Hummingbird, The Hummingbird. Uh, and the Hummingbird was a, a Gibson guitar uh, made that was fancy. It like had doves or, uh, well, I guess it was Hummingbird, but it had beautiful um, sunburst on it, red, cherry, yellow. And so for my dad, and f- that's what he wanted, a Hummingbird uh, guitar. He never had one. They were kind of the most expensive thing Gibson made at the time. So he always wanted one. Anyway, at my recording of that song, The Hummingbird, has uh, a guitar thing at the top of it. And that's the first thing I ever learned. That's the first thing I ever played on a guitar, which you can hear, if you were to hear it, you'd say, yeah, that guy can't play guitar. Uh, But when you don't know how to play guitar, uh, how are you going to start? You just start by playing very, very simple. And you'll hear, that's literally the first thing I remember playing is... uh, what became then, I used that as my intro for The Hummingbird. That's so cool. Uh, that, I, that I wrote. And I still perform it with that simple intro too. Hmm. Um, there's just something about it that seems right in my story. Wow. So cool. All right. Who is the best singer? Who is the best singer? Mm-hmm. God. The, there's so many. Uh, John Cowan from The New Grass, you had mentioned earlier, is an amazing singer. Uh, I love all kinds. I I liked Glenn Campbell. He would kind of overdo it sometimes, oh, but yeah. but as a pop singer, man, it's hard to beat what he did. But I also love Waylon Jennings, um, Ralph Stanley. Stanley, yeah, great singer. I mean, uh, Peter Rowan is a great singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, on and on. There's so many. Uh, yeah, it, it, we're, we're in no trouble for singers either. <laughs> we got a good good. Uh, Past, present, and future for singing. Okay, who's the best piano player? First that comes to mind is I just heard a Bruce Hornsby track this, this uh, week from something geez. new of his. And he, you know, as as always, it's just like, you know, there's talk about the triple threat. His playing, his singing, his writing. You know, he's still killing it after all these decades, you know. Mm. Uh, and it's, it sounds fresh and hip, it sounds jazz, and singer-songwriter, it's all sorts of crazy, wonderful things thrown into one bag, shaken up. And uh, so today I'll say uh, Bruce Hornsby. What is the secret to eternal youth and relevance? Mmm, relevance. I guess when it, the relevance one is one that rings for me. Uh, somehow we're... You know, there's the music business that you want to be relevant in, they, that I think that's what we're supposed to do. 
Uh, and then there's how much you participate in the social medias and the, here's a picture of me eating an apple, you know, in Colorado, mm. here's an apple in <laughs> Maine, and all that kind of stuff What we're somehow think that we're made supposed to do uh, and why to be relevant. Is it relevant to eat an apple in Maine or, or Colorado? So there's a bunch of silly stuff we all have to seemingly, I don't know, go through in order to do what we think will be relevant in our socials and all that stuff. Uh, I'm not sure that that's, that's a pretty quickly burnt out relevance. Uh, the more relevant uh, are the songs. Um, so, uh, so in my case, I want to just continue putting out music that um, the relevance part will take care of itself if, if there's relevance to be had. Uh, it's a funny thing. See, I know the songs that I haven't recorded. I know the projects that are still in my computer even right now. I know the amount of projects I'm working on of my own stuff. Uh, and there's this dichotomy between I, I know the songs, but y'all don't know the songs. So uh, the relevance, I already am relevant to myself, uh, so to speak. It's, I'm, I guess we're all working toward relevance to the mass. There's that mass subject again. Uh, we're trying to be relevant to more people, right? Because mm -hmm. it isn't enough that I wrote the song and I know that it's good and it does, it does what I want it to do. That's already happened. I suppose I'm in a role of trying to make it seem relevant to you. Um, and that's a different role than my own self-relevance, you see? Mm -hmm. Relevance almost sounds like it's somebody else who needs to make mm -hmm. me relevant because evidently I'm not relevant without y'all thinking I'm relevant. And I, that's a trick saying, but you see what I mean? I'm so you dizzy. You see what I'm oh, talking yeah. about? So we spend our time <laughs> oh being God. relevant in socials. How relevant is that, you know? <laughs> that's a doozy. Wow. I know. Lie down. I know, I know, oh, wow. I know. But that's the kind of crap. So you say, you know, that dark Darryl stuff. Daryl Scott, you broke the lightning round. You oh, did it. I? We're done here. <laughs> oh, did I smash it? It's your podcast now. Okay, I'll take we over. We just exist in it. <laughs> All right. Should we just do one more? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Go ahead, Liz. You finish up soon. Oh, me? Okay. <laughs> Daryl Scott, this yeah. is the last question. What is your favorite Kentucky treat? Several things pop into mind. Uh, some sweet and some savory. The savory is uh, leather britches, let's say. And leather britches are beans that are picked, you know, at, when you're harvesting in peak summer, let's say, and you get those beans and you string them up, literally with thread, thread and needle. Mm -hmm. And you then, uh, the old way used to be, you hang it out on the porch, let it air dry, so in essence, you're dehydrating it. Um, and then you, you put them away because they'll now last through the winter, right? Uh, but then when you bring them out, you rehydrate them. So in essence, all of that, that goo, that strong, uh, is it umami? Is that the word? Mm -hmm, umami. Umami. Uh, talk about umami bomb is, is uh, those leather britches, which is basically a dried up green bean uh, in the sun and in the wind and in the this and that. And you rehydrate them. And so when they soak up water or broth, um, they become something uh, hard to explain. You think it's just a bean, uh, you know it is, but it has this umami thing and almost a meat 
like uh, texture and the broth and makes the gravy from the leather britches. So right now I'll say leather britches <laughs> as, as my Kentucky treat. <laughs> Very wow. labor intensive. They should make you the governor. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm, I guess I'm available for that. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl Scott, thank you so much for talking to us today. You have blown our minds, I feel like, more than 25 times during this interview. It's just such a pleasure to, to get to know you through this new album and, and through this conversation. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for your interest. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by C.J. Nungesser. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can check us out on the SiriusXM app by searching for Basic Folk. You can find us wherever you get podcasts, or you can check out our website, basicfolk.com. This is a great episode to share with anyone in your life who is a big country music fan, especially if they are a fan of the chicks, um, or as I like to call them, the Dixie Chicks. This Daryl Scott interview is going to tickle the brain of your country music-loving friend, colleague, neighbor, or relative. Thanks a lot for listening all the way to the end. You are doing a great job. We'll talk to you next time. Um, Bye. Bye. Bye.